0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and every week we will be discussing topics in the wine world. Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Every week, myself and my co-host Mark, we discuss trending topics in the wine world. And we like to figure out what we've been paying attention to and Googling in the past week. So, Mark, what'd you Google? Google.
1: Well, Kim, I was looking up a medieval unit of measure called a butt. B U T T. I
0: talked about this yesterday with my
1: husband. I know you do a lot of history, so I I always say the term butt, and I'm always thinking it's a huge barrel. I wanted to know what it converted to in in volume. So, how much is a butt of wine? A butt of wine is 475 liters or 126 gallons, or as it was said in medieval times, 108 imperial gallons. Okay. Or 12 American gallons. So I, I was kind of... Wait a minute.
0: So it's 12 American it says, gallons?
1: It said the imperial... gallon. Yeah, this is where it's confusing. Imperial yeah. gallons of 108 was the equivalent of one... Twelve American gallons, but then it said it, it's four hundred seventy-five liters or one hundred twenty-six gallons. So, have you ever seen the actual gallon thing? To Mm-mm. if you go by liters, it's definitely one hundred twenty-six. So, yeah. I don't know. know I think the that imperial.
0: there's a typo there for their American gallons. Maybe
1: well, that's Google. Interesting, right? But it's an, an Italian and a French term. So, yes.
0: and t- and it's the, actually the same root word as we get the word bottle from. Believe yes. it or not, um, that's
1: the Italian yes connection correct
0: yep and uh my husband said this yesterday that he was looking up the what a buttery was he's like what do you know what they store in a buttery and i'm like Butter? buttery
1: is a person in wine right like a butler
0: and i think it's yeah. all connected language yeah. wise so a buttery uh, could be a place to store um beer and also wine
1: that's funny when i first was looking for a twitter handle for wine education i searched buttery and, and, is, was and isn't there it yeah there's taken. a
0: company that does wine delivery that's called buttery isn't there yes yeah, so
1: it was an app at one time yeah. i believe yeah So what did you Google, Kim?
0: So I actually Googled a product that is in your store. I was looking up some information about French Accorda which is sparkling wine from Italy that is not Prosecco. It is more closely related to Champagne. So it is Italy's answer to Champagne. It's made from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. It's made in the same method as Champagne. Sometimes it has a little bit of a golden color and sort of a toasty, biscuity flavor. And when you serve it side by side with Champagne, it really does stand up to it. And um, it's absolutely delicious. So I wanted to know a little bit more information about Franciacorta.
1: And I'm so happy the Bubbly Queen mentioned French Accorda because this is a phenomenal spot. Oh wine. so
0: good. So a topic from our friends over at Wine Folly and a question that we get frequently about wines that are blends. And why would you blend a wine? Why wouldn't you just stick with all of the same grape in that wine? And there are reasons behind why a winemaker may choose to blend a number of different grapes together and uh, and make a new type of wine product. That you have a lot of blends on your shelves, don't you? Yeah,
1: we covered how many. I was trying to think back how many episodes we've talked about how, red blends are popular you talk about blends so
0: and how white blends are not popular unless you're talking about sparkling
1: wine but still a blend and, how, still a blend. and how sparkling <laughs> champagne is a blend so one of the things I think people should know is that a blend of wine it can be the grapes it can be the vineyards that they blend it can be the vintages that they blend it can be the barrels that they're blending so there's, it's more than just the grapes they're blending it's, it's a variety of things it can be and one of the things in the past we always talk about too Kim is when you see on a label if it says the grape it only has to be 75% of that grape typically in the United States or 85% in Europe. So most wines are a blend mm-hmm. and people don't realize
0: that. Right, And we make a point, and especially when we're writing tasting notes or when we're writing something for a list or some sort of educational thing, we make a point, if it is 100%, to say 100%. Because if we see that it just says a grape variety, we are never convinced that it is all of that grape variety. So we really do look for that. 100% marker if we're looking at a text sheet or a tasting note that's put out by a winery or put out by some other wine professional. We really do pay attention to that because it can influence the flavor of the wine. If you have a grape variety like Pinot Noir that is light and delicate, if you're only required by law to put 75% of that grape in the bottle, you can muscle that thing up with 25% of something else and really change the style and the character of that wine. So especially for something like Pinot, we pay, pay a lot of attention to that.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned this point because <laughs> I get important. that feedback so much that... It, so you're talking Pinot. In the Pinot section, I'll put this is only 75% Pinot, so it's heavy. And people say, well, it's a Pinot Noir. Well, there's a big difference between the one that's 75% and the one that's 100%. So I get the feedback that way. But for me, I know the style right away to mm-hmm. to recommend it. The other thing that I'll do is I'll put it's 99% cab. It's 1% Petit Bordeaux. <laughs> do you, do you even like, go to that Yeah, that type and of people level? say you know cuz if you if i say it's 100% i want to make sure it's 100% so if it has 1% petite verdo it does make a little difference to the wine it might be a little darker in color or have something flavor profile from that petite Verdot, but People think they don't. Why do I care
0: about that? Yeah, I like thinking of it like a recipe. When exactly. winemakers are putting together their final cuvee, their final blend for their wine, yes, there's the science of winemaking, but there's a little bit of art that goes into it too. If you add, you know, a pinch of this and a smidge of that, and you're deciding what barrels to use, you know, there's there's this feeling of it, and you really, for the the best ones, get to experiment a little bit and really be creative. So I think that 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 is where the art of blending really comes in you might have like you said a lot of that Cabernet or that Merlot, but then maybe you have a little Malbec or you have a little Petit Verdot or you have a little Cabernet Franc. That winemaker can use those other grape varieties to really change the character and make that wine better than it than it could be. You're filling out sort of maybe the holes that, that only Cabernet would have had or only Merlot would have had. So I actually think that looking for a wine that is a little bit of a blend can be a bit, a bit of a better wine, even though sometimes people think that a blend is an inferior style of wine that's not necessarily the case that is an
1: excellent reference i'm going to steal
0: that instead of saying which one
1: instead of saying blend i'll say this is a recipe of it's 90 99 cab, one percent cab. i think that is a great way to look at it because i mean we recently heard a story we we had a south african tasting and it was like what was it shannon and something else was a, there was a weird grape in the wine and we said to the gentleman why is he putting this in? He said, "Well, one of his friends called him. He harvested his grapes. He no one would a, buy yeah. it. So the buddy said you know what? I'll take it from. It. I know you grow good grapes, and I'll find a way to put it in my recipe or my blend.' And he did, and the wine was perfect. Mm-hmm. And he just he worked it in. So, it, like they mentioned the article, and you mentioned Kim, it is such an art that you can do something like that. Take someone else's totally different grapes, put it in, and still have your style that you like. So I love that. I'm going to steal that. All
0: right. It's like your banana tannin. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to steal bananas. that one too. Yep want to sound smart when you're talking about wine use the word blend i hear oftentimes beginner wine drinkers will will use the word mix you know is it a mix um you know that's it's not paint paint. (laughs) um you can use mix if you're making sangria (laughs) that that works or a cocktail but otherwise do use the term blend because that is the appropriate term to use and you'll you'll sound a whole lot smarter
1: and we mentioned kim a blend is a house style. So tell our listeners, when you talk house style, what are we really referring to in the wine world that this comes up a lot?
0: And we're back to my bubbles. So we're back to champagne. But often, you know, we see this with Bordeaux a bit too. Was champagne the answer you were looking for?
1: Yes, well, you're the bubble. Okay. We have to promote you for that. So
0: Right. So for, for champagne, they're the master blenders of champagne. But not only are they blending different grape varieties, but they're blending different vintages. So their whole point is very different from where you find what you find in other parts, especially of France, where you get what you get in a particular vintage. And if one year is vastly different from another year because of the the weather that particular year, you just you sort of like, yeah, this is this is this is what we do. This is our philosophy. You know, we take what Mother Nature throws at us. Champagne doesn't really like to do that. They are so much more about the branding of their wines and then the marketing of their wines that they are trying to make a consistent house style year in and year out. So I like to use the example of Veuve Clicquot. Orangey yellow bottle of champagne that is very familiar to a lot of people. They want it to be that if you buy a bottle of Veuve Clicquot in the year 2005 and you drink it and you really love it and then 10 years later you buy another bottle of Veuve Clicquot in that same yellow packaging, they want that wine to taste exactly the same as the one that you had 10 years ago because they are they have a following of people who like what their wine tastes like. So just just like well, maybe you're a coke drinker and not a pepsi drinker maybe you're a clico drinker and not a moet drinker and that's what they're looking for
1: so the house style is actually a house recipe it's
0: a house recipe
1: i like it that one even better so we're gonna
0: we're gonna keep using the word that they use is the cuvee but i think if we go with recipe that makes us sound so
1: here's a little where, more homey here's where i, <laughs> I want to go couve. now kim here's where i want to go now thinking about blends and styles you had mentioned in the past about Kendall Jackson. Kendall Jackson's Chardonnay the 2008 vintage, does it not taste the same in the 2017 vintage that it did in the 2008 vintage to you? They're trying right? to do that. So the brands... Absolutely.
0: Those big brands... Are
1: actually styles or recipes. Yes. recipes. But they're not considered blends. But when you, when we were talking earlier in this article, a blend is from regions, from vineyards. That's what they're doing. Every vintage is they're blending to create a style or a recipe.
0: Because I think when the consumer thinks about a blend of wine, they are thinking about the grape varieties. They're not necessarily thinking about regional differences because regional differences, I don't think, have the impact in the imagination of the wine drinker than different grape varieties do. You can sort of Wrap your head around the idea That Merlot tastes like this Cabernet tastes like this Pinot Noir tastes like this It is much harder For the everyday wine consumer To think that this place tastes this way And then this other place tastes this way
1: It's like a So I l- like this whole thing about the blends And I'm thinking, Kim That there is a sort of conspiracy In the blending world With Ooh. blending Not We talk about the big brands But they do blend When there's years They don't have enough grape sauce From California They'll then change it to Chile or whatever. So it, it is blending at a huge level. And I'm so glad in this article that they mentioned there's all different forms of it. So then she mentioned, and you mentioned it earlier, there are some famous blends in the wine world. We, we talked about Bordeaux. It's always a blend of five grapes. And depending on harvest, the house style depends on how one grape or the other grows that year. They mentioned Rhone blends. Mm -hmm. You you want to talk a little about what they call GSM blends in Rhone?
0: So Rhone blends generally are a blend of a number of different grapes, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes a whole lot more, especially in places like Chateauneuf-du-Pape where they have dozens of grape varieties that they can put in the blend. You will sometimes see producers that make a point of saying, yes, our, our wine is all Grenache or our wine is all Syrah, but oftentimes they will use the major grapes of the area. And depending on what they grow more of or what flavor profiles they like, they'll use more or less of a particular grape variety. So usually it's a lot of Grenache, but there will usually be some Movedra in there, some Syrah in there. There's another grape variety called Senso that sometimes is thrown in there. But usually the big three are Grenache, Syrah, Movedra. So you'll see that people will abbreviate that to GSM. And not just in the Rhone. Like this is a style that has translated very well into Australia. So you'll see a lot of Australian blends of this type. And in California, too, it was it was very, very popular about 20 years ago. There were a lot of people, they call them the Rhone Rangers, who were making these Rhone style blends. And typically,
1: if you see a blend and it's listing the grapes somewhere, usually it's from the most used to the least used. So if it says GSM, usually there's more Grenache than Syrah, more Syrah than Movedra. So it's kind of a tip for, for wine buying. One of the other famous blends in the wine world they mentioned was Super Tuscan from Italy. Italy, and we talked about this in the past super tuscan has no real official term but it's usually a blend of something usually sangiovese cab merlot they mentioned uh, washington state with cms blends and we talked about washington state in another episode have you seen a lot of
0: cms definitely brands? from washington yeah i don't think they're as popular now as they used to be but those are another blend that's based on cabernet and then has other things in the blend so the csm would be cab cab syrah merlot uh so yeah, the yeah. first the first time I saw that
1: was I just saw a big CMS on the label and I thought that was the winery. Oh uh, yeah, know, years and years ago there was one brand that was their big thing they put on the in yep. huge. Letters. I remember that I do. So the other two uh, countries they mentioned for blending Portugal Portugal wines they use the kitchen sink in and their blends <laughs> and <laughs> we can't even most of the time pronounce half the grapes but they do blend a lot in Greece you mentioned in another episode oh. how you googled uh greek grapes they do a lot of blending oh as that's well.
0: interesting because i've only i've seen a lot of single varietal but There's, maybe that kind of goes in with that it's the majority of one grape variety and then they blend in a little bit of those other things type of thing. yeah for i'm that, surprised for she making that recipe she didn't
1: mention french like all sauce which i thought they, oh, they do make they, blends they have, yeah you know field blends which is kind of unusual in the wine world but did you could you think of any other blends that maybe didn't mention or any other points of blends?
0: There some places in Spain that will do that will do the blending, but um mm. did you mention Bordeaux? She like that's the big the one. The Bordeaux comes blend to mind. was the one. Yeah, with yeah, yeah. the
1: first one. So, yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of good information and I, I learned a lot from you today, Ken. All I, right. hope, I
0: hope the listeners Yeah, got so don't some you know, don't be scared. Don't think it's an inferior product if it doesn't say that big Cabernet across across the front. You know, blends are I think fun to explore and And, you know, think of them like a chef's recipe instead of as something that is uh, just being put together from a bunch of different barrels. You're
1: listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim... Please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to send us questions or comments, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about an article we found in justdrinks.com. Why is wine getting more complicated in the age of simplicity?
0: I think this is a really good question to ask and something that those of us in the industry really do need to think about and kind of our disconnect between what we do and how we think about wine and the end consumer. I, I really do think that it's important for us to reflect upon these ideas.
1: Yes. One of the things they mentioned, Kim, was we're not just telling people, you know, it's from Italy. We're saying it's from Tuscany. It's from this hillside. So are we giving out too much information? Do people really care about that information specifically to the area it's from?
0: Right. I have always been of a way of thinking about wine and how does the end consumer use that information? Is it of value to them? And that's why I tend to focus more on the flavors of a wine and what a wine tastes like, and not necessarily about the specific sub-appellations or what is the soil type or all of those other things which can go into the story of the wine. And I know that you, Mark, really like to talk about what's the story behind the wine. You know, that wine does have romance and that, you know, people often are going to make up their mind about a wine based on what what is the backstory of that wine. But you know, you start talking about soil types and people's eyes glaze over because that is not useful information to the consumer. It's it's useful to some consumers. Some people really do get all excited about what is the mineral here and is this limestone soil or was it grown on clay and with those people we're perfectly happy to talk about soil. But I think for the vast majority of people that that stuff they don't have a way to process it. It's not valuable information. It doesn't translate for them into the flavor in their glass. So
1: do you think that complicated is the same as geeky? Is I it too think geeky that the two are the related.
0: I think they can be related. I'm okay with doing the geeky stuff if we can make that information applicable to the consumer. Uh, but it's also con- confusing too because, okay, who is the end user? Who is the consumer? We talk to a lot of different people. We certainly have a lot of different people come to our classes, come to my events. People might really want to know the ins and outs of that particular vintage or that particular location. But other people don't. So it it is hard because we do have often a wide variety of people that we're that we're talking to all at the same time.
1: Overall I think a lot of feedback I get is wine is confusing. Mm-hmm. Confusing equals complicated yeah and to explain a lot of things you have to get geeky about it. and so we as educators we need a starting point then you need to know where to get from simple to start getting into the the complicated or right the geeky but we
0: stuff. also don't want to dumb it down because i think that there are levels of simplicity that you can try to bring to the table to to, for people when talking about wine, but I don't think you want to make it dumb because it is a complex product. You know, there there is a lot going on in there. You can appreciate it at its simplest level or you can appreciate it at a more complex level. And I think that there's a difference between dumbing it down and simplifying. And other people disagree. Other people think that, well, if you make it too simple, then it, you're, you're losing the magic of the wine. You're, you're losing what makes this wine simple special but i think that there are different levels but i i understand what they're saying about when the wine producers themselves are getting so specific about where this wine comes from that does that mean that now everything is special and that you know you're sort of losing your specialness if everyone is special i guess it's like the incredibles yeah (laughs) <laughs> no, I, and
1: I think you do a great job, like we were talking earlier about, you know, blends and using recipe. You, you, you have to bring in terms and descriptors that make it simple for a complicated process. And I think a, a big example of that is when we do a tasting, you're saying, well, this is how you taste wine. And people look at you, I drink wine all the time, right? Why are you telling me I have to swirl it and smell it? I just want to taste it, right? But you have to explain there's a complicated system of how you're supposed to enjoy it, but you simplify it and saying this is why we do it and this is what you're smelling And well
0: like this is when I tell people that there's a difference between tasting and drinking and I'm not going to tell you how to drink your wine H- what I am going to do is lead you through this tasting which is a different totally different thing which I think is a good is a thing where people saying, well that's so complicated right I just right. I
1: taste it I like it why do you like it it's it's wine. I like it. Right. Well, right. so that's and now simplifying we're going to a taste... very complicated. No, I think
0: that's different. I think that's different. You know, if people don't need to be taught how to drink, but if you are interested in learning how to taste wine, where are the people to come to. But maybe you're not interested in that. But I figure if those 25 people are sitting in front of me because they have come to a wine tasting and not a wine guzzling, then they are there to learn. So then I'm going to put that information in front of them. It's yeah. That's I just I feel like they're now you're my audience that you want to know. So you you've already taken that first step of wanting to know a little bit more. So yes, I'm going to try to make it so that it is not as complex or as complicated as it could be depending on the knowledge level of the group in front of me. But you've already crossed that first threshold of yes, I want to learn more. Yes, I want to learn how to taste wine. So now I'm going to bring you through those five or you know, five steps or so in
1: wine tasting. Kim, what do you think is, the, I don't know if I want to say simplest or complex for us, what do you think is the most simplest wine thing that is very complicated to explain? Ooh, the simplest thing, that's hardest to explain? The wine process that you say it, it, we always say it in a simple way, but it's very complex. It's multi stage. Oh, so
0: fermentation, the, definitely.
1: It, that's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. Wine making, the whole process is very complex. Complicated, but when we explain it what do we say
0: we, we say we grapes, try to say it in the simplest sugar, right, yeast right. sugar ye- yeast eats sugar the it spits out alcohol carbon dioxide and a little bit of heat at its simplest simplest and that's Right. and that is all, all consumers need. Exactly, so you that, don't need to know the twenty-seven steps of fermentation. That go exactly, on, and on a chemical level, you don't need to level. know
1: the differences how whites and reds and rosés and fortified. You just want to know it involves but grapes. But some right? people
0: do want to know that, so I do get the question of after I talk about fermentation and you know how that happens, and then people are like, well, well, wait, how how is rosé made? Then people are curious and they want to know more. So then it's like, well, let me tell you about how rosé is different from red and how it's different from white. So then we take that next step. But I don't think I have ever had any of my classes where I need to go into the actual chemical transformation that happens during fermentation. Yeah, I agree.
1: And I think that's, you know, when I was reading this article, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it's, it's getting complicated that they want to give you more of this information. If you ever read Tech notes they 're telling you details of the winemaking that a lot of people in myself most of the time i, I don't really care that yeah. <laughs> certain things. And I think, Uh, and I'm geeky, so I can see that their point.
0: Another one that is similar for me is sweetness and tartness. You know, when you're talking about sugar and you're talking about acid and how people perceive it, some people, especially if you're looking at a tech sheet, you know, they're actually giving you the level of acid that is in that wine. They're telling you the pH. They're telling you the actual residual sugar amount that's in there. I don't. I I think for me, it's good to have that information because I know how to translate that into. To usable sensory data, I guess you could say, in my mind, but that doesn't work for most people because you don't know what 3.7 pH is supposed to taste like in a wine. So talking about sweetness versus acid and how those two things play together and how it makes the wine taste in your mouth, I think that's another like really complicated subject that sometimes it's just simpler for pe- to tell people this wine is off dry. It has a little bit of sweetness to it or this is a dry tart wine but I'm not going to talk to you about levels of acidity in there. That is wine 301. It's <laughs> all of wine 101
1: perception of absolutely dry and sweet anyway. Yep. But I thought interesting too, Kim, in this they did not mention a lot about tasting notes. No, tasting notes to that. me has been the thing they're making more and more complicated when it's very simple. Tell me basically what it tastes like. Don't try to come up with writing terms to be a creative writer when you should just be a wine reviewer. And this is
0: always something that wine people argue about. When we get really into a wine, especially if it's a wine that is complex and has lots of layers and we're getting super pumped up about it, we want to write in a lot of detail about how we're perceiving that wine, the flavors and the aromas and the textures that we're getting out of that wine. But that's not necessarily going to translate very well to someone who isn't getting all of those flavors. So there are some people that will argue from how you're arguing it, that we should keep it as simple as possible. And then there are people on the other side of it that are like, no way, I am going to put exactly what I'm getting in whatever, you know, flowery terms I want to put and then people can pull from that what they will. So that's another one that people like to argue about all the time.
1: Yeah, and that's like the, the wine 101, 201, 301. I'm <laughs> tasting fruit, I'm tasting black fruits, I'm tasting right. cherry. You keep going on and on. So, But definitely it's something I think that should be simplified more in the wine world. Anything else you think too complex that should be simplified? I think we, we hit a lot of good ones I think listeners can yeah, relate to. I
0: think, I think just the, the, you know the way that labels are written can be very, very confusing for consumers because there's a lot of information that a winemaker wants to get out onto that label. And sometimes they might be required by law to put that on the label. You might not be concerned about this wine came from this particular vineyard in this particular area. You might just be looking for a Chardonnay. But that producer is proud of the fact that their Chardonnay comes from this very specific place because for them, the winemaker, that site translates into higher quality. You you as the consumer might not understand that. And, you know, on a one-on-one case, you might get that. Like if you go to the winery and you taste that wine from that... That one place, and you're there, and you have all the feelings and all the emotions that come with being in that particular place. Then you are going to translate that place into quality for you. But if you are looking at twenty five Chardonnays and they all have different, slightly different place names and vineyard sites on them, that's just gobbledygook. That's not going to really make a whole lot of sense to you when you're standing in front of a shelf and you're trying to choose what to buy.
1: You know what I've seen lately, Kim, is exactly what you said. They highlight the sense of the place or the AVA, but instead of highlighting highlighting it. As a location, they're using it in the brand name because I think they feel like it's simplified if the brand is actually the spot.
0: Are they allowed to do that?
1: So, <laughs> it's drawing attention to, I'm thinking you see it as the brand, you think, well, how did they come up with that, right? And then you research, oh, it's a new AVA. Or, Interesting. So, I've seen that on at least two or three brands where they say, oh, this is a new AVA or new viticultural area. To highlight it, we're putting the AVA down, but we're also making it the trade name, in, mm-hmm. in the trade name, so Somehow. Well there, so there is get... sort
0: of a gray area sometimes between the name of the wine and the brand of the wine. I and mean, we see this with with say Bordeaux. You know, there's a gajillion producers who make Bordeaux, but people understand that Bordeaux is a particular style. So sometimes it doesn't matter to the consumer who the producer is, it's I want a bottle of Bordeaux, or I want a bottle of champagne. And the producer is sort of secondary. I want a bottle of Chianti. It's the Chianti that is important to people because they know that they They have liked Chianti in the past. I want another bottle of Chianti. The producer is kind of secondary. So there is sort of this gray area, I feel, between some place names and this sort of idea of brand.
1: But it's simplified, so I think it's a good thing, right? If you want to get more complicated, you you research it, right? Thank you for joining us today. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find our past episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud, and you can send us questions or comments on our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers.